So it's fitting that as we are looking at Jonah chapter 2 this morning, that we are also celebrating Reformation Sunday. See, Reformation Day is a, is a day when we celebrate a monumental event in the history of the church. Now, I'm not sure how familiar you are with uh, Reformation Day, so I'll tell you how uh, it really all started. See, there was a, a German monk named Martin Luther who was from a small town called Wittenberg. And here he was uh, teaching and, and instructing uh, the, the people of the city of Wittenberg, and he had been disturbed by a few things that he was seeing, and um, by a few people who had been endorsed by the Pope and by the church. There was one man in particular whose name was Johann Tetzel, that he was especially appalled by. You see, Tetzel had been sent by the, the archbishop of that region to go and to sell indulgences in order to, to raise money for this, this massive uh, building that the pope wanted to make. The pope and the archbishop had made a deal that uh, if the archbishop was able to raise enough money, that the pope then would give him uh, another arch, archbishopric uh, where he could, he could rule over another area. And so the way that they were going to raise money was through indulgences. And now, if you're not familiar with what an indulgence is, it's rooted in this idea that certain saints, uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary, Jesus Christ himself, had done all of these good works, uh, and they didn't, they'd done so much good works that they didn't need them for their salvation. So there's, there's kind of this excess amount of good works, and it, it goes into something that's called the treasury of merit. And so the treasury of merit is pretty much this, this bank account of all of these extra good works, all of this extra merit, and the Pope, uh, because God's, uh, Jesus said that he would give the keys to, to Peter, that transferred down to the Pope, and the Pope alone had the keys to get into this bank account and dish out this extra merit uh, that had been earned by the saints and by Mary and by Jesus himself. And so now the question is, how do I get this extra merit? How do I, how do I tap into this, this bank account that is flowing with all of these good works? Well, the way was through indulgences. You see, you, you pay some money to the church, you buy an indulgence, and now you can be spared from some of the consequences of, of your sin. Or, if you went to the right person, like Johann Tetzel, you could even get an indulgence for someone who has already died and who is in purgatory, and you could get them a little less time in there where they're, they're being purified and paying for their sins. One of the lines that Tetzel would say was every time a, a coin in the coffer clings, a soul from purgatory springs. That's how powerful his indulgences were. Well, Luther rightly saw that this was completely an unbiblical teaching. And so he drafted what was called the 95 Theses on Indulgences. And he went and he, he nailed them to the Wittenberg door on October 31st, 1517. And this sparked really the, the beginning of the Reformation. See, Luther and the Reformers eventually argued to the point of death that there is nothing that we can do to merit our salvation. You can't purchase salvation. You can't make yourself uh, more appealing to God so that he, he chooses you for salvation. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. See, salvation is entirely a work 
of God's grace alone. And the reason that it's fitting that we're studying Jonah 2 this morning is because just as the, the medieval church at that time uh, and, and the Catholic church today has a, had a wrong understanding of the grace of God, we're going to see that so too did Jonah. See, Jonah knew about the grace of God. He would say that he believed in the grace of God, but ultimately, throughout the book, we see that his life showed that he misunderstood the grace of God. You see, Jonah, he's got this problem all throughout this story. And Jonah's problem is exactly that. He doesn't understand God's grace. He's grown up his, his whole life hearing about this idea of grace. In fact, later in chapter 4, he's going to quote one of the most uh, quoted and most prominent uh, statements of the Bible from Exodus 34, verse 6, where he says, The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so Jonah knows this. He, he says these things with his lips, yet we'll see he never, he never quite really understands it. And perhaps that's you this morning. Maybe you've, you've grown up your whole life in the church and you've heard about how God is a gracious God. Maybe even proclaim and say that God is a gracious God. But do you rightly understand what that actually means? Do you understand what it means to be saved as a Christian by grace alone? Well, from Jonah's prayer in the belly of the whale, we're going to see four truths that we need to rightly understand before we can rightly understand God's grace. Two of the truths have to do with our understanding of God. And then two of the truths have to do with our understanding of ourselves. You see, if you, if you understand God, but you don't understand yourself, you won't fully see your need for the grace of God. And if you understand yourself, but you don't understand God, you won't ever come to the God of grace for your salvation. And we'll see that Jonah, in, in more ways than one, fails to understand the truth about God and himself. Now today, I'm going to give you a quick warning up front, because many people don't believe this, but I'm going to try and make the case that Jonah was, was never truly repentant in his prayer. Now most of us have this picture in our, in our minds of Jonah on his knees inside this whale, and he's He's down and he's repenting and he's asking for forgiveness. I look through some of my kids' uh, Bible story books and most of them have a chapter on Jonah and they'll say something like, uh, Jonah prayed and he asked God for forgiveness in the well. And now it's true that Jonah does pray and he does call out to God uh, and he does see that he is in distress, as, as Kevin said. But as we read through, I want you to keep, keep an eye out for whether he actually repents of his sin. And then at the end of the sermon, we're going to look at an example of someone who actually did sin uh, and, and recognized their sin and repented very clearly to the Lord uh, of that. So Jonah, he's, he's definitely thankful to God. He's in the Bible and he's quoting so many psalms. He's, he knows the psalms and, and he sees them uh, as, as his source of comfort. And, and he knows that it is God who has saved him, but he doesn't actually repent. And now the reason that this is important for us is because remember that Jonah is a, is a story more about a person than the message. It's more about a person than the message. Or the person is the message. And the author, he wants us to, to look at Jonah and see how we, in many ways, are just like Jonah. 
Now, the book of Jonah is meant to be a mirror for us, to, to look at Jonah's life and then to look back at our lives and say, are we being like Jonah? Do we misunderstand the grace of God just as Jonah does? And so let's read now Jonah chapter 2. It actually starts in verse 17. In the Hebrew, though, it starts uh, Jonah chapter 2. Verse 17 is part of chapter 2. So let's read all of, all of chapter 2. It says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The, the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head and the roots of the mountains. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up, my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. What I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. So as I said earlier, this passage is really about the grace of God. Last week we ended up with Jonah, a man who refuses to repent, a man who would rather die, be thrown overboard, then repent to God. He gets thrown and cast into the waters, uh, presumably to his death. But yet, at the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2, something amazing happens. You know, verse 17 says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And so this leads to the, the first of our four truths that we need to rightly understand if we are to rightly understand God's grace. And that is that we need to rightly understand God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. Now what I mean by God's sovereignty is His total control of all things past, present, and future. See, nothing happens beyond his knowledge and control. All things are either caused by him or allowed by him for his own purposes in accordance to his perfect will and timing. Colossians 1, verse 16 to 17, when, when talking about Jesus and his sovereignty, says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things hold together. Essentially, everything depends on God. He is the cre creator and sustainer of all things. Have you ever thought, why, why does the world not just collapse into chaos? Why does, 
Why does water continue to function as water? Why does the sun continue to rise every morning? Why do our proteins and our DNA continue to function as they're designed to function? Well, it is because God is sovereign over all things and is holding all things together. All these things which are, are seemingly natural occurrences that we see, the Bible actually says that it is God who causes them to happen and God who maintains their properties and maintains them all. In Him, all things hold together. And we see the sovereignty of God in this first verse. It says that He appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Earlier in chapter 1, we saw that God uh, sent a big storm, that He is the God of, of, of rain and, and the God of the sea. But now we see that He even has authority to appoint His living creation to do as He wills. Now, He can say to a fish, go and swallow that man, and the fish obeys. And then further it says, Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. Now, immediately, maybe it's because I went to school for biology, I start to think, how can someone live in a, in, in a whale for three days and three nights? I mean, what about the digestive juices? What about the stomach acid? What about the oxygen that you need to breathe? Well, we see here, again, the sovereignty of God. God is the one who created digestive enzymes. God is the one who gives properties to hydrochloric acid. He is the one who causes the lungs to work on oxygen or not work on oxygen. And so he's able to do whatever he pleases in order to accomplish his redemptive purposes. You see, God is sovereign over all creation, and that should, that should really cause us to worship him. I mean, who of us can say to a fish, go and do this? I can barely say that to my kids, and they think... God is, is completely sovereign over all of creation, and that should cause us to worship Him as the one true creator and sustainer of all things. And the sovereignty of God is intrinsically related to His grace. That's why we need to properly understand it if we're to understand His grace. See, God is able to do as He pleases and thank the Lord that He is a, a gracious God who uses this sovereignty not to, to do evil, but to give grace and to bring redemption to his people. I want you to think of the idea of, of discipline. Hebrews 12, verse 5 to 6 says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the, the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when, when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So from that verse, we see that God in his sovereignty orders his creation around in order that he might discipline us when we sin. You know, when God brings discipline on us, God is, is taking control of his creation. He's, he's orchestrating certain events so that we might be disciplined. See, God afflicts us for our sin in order to teach us. And he doesn't do it because he, he hates us or because he's not a good God. Rather, it's the, quite the opposite. He does it because he loves us, because he is gracious to us. And if I, if I discipline my child for, for running into a, a busy street, am I doing that because I, I hate them? 
No, I'm doing that because I love them and I don't want to see them continue down the path that they're going and perish. And the same is true with God. Think about Jonah. I mean, all the sailors on the boat eventually uh, call out to Yahweh in prayer. They even ask him for forgiveness. They kind of pre-repent of a sin they may be, may be committing. And yet Jonah has not done that once. But then in verse 1 of our passage it says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. So God in his, his sovereignty throws Jonah overboard for his sin. He disciplines him. And then he appoints a great fish to rescue Jonah from death. And this, is, and this is how God gets Jonah to come and pray to him. He disciplines him in order to put him back on the right path. See, it took Jonah being cast overboard. He says he's, he can feel the seaweed around his neck. He can feel the bars closing in over him. It's all of this in a three-night stay in a, in a one-star stinky hotel to get him to pray. And the idea is that Jonah needs to be disciplined. He needs to be, to be brought low in order so that he could look up and see the Lord, and pray to Him. You know, I once heard this, this old joke. It said, a crisis hits the church, so one Christian says to another, I guess we ought to pray. And the other Christian says, has it really come to that? You know, the point is that, that sometimes God needs to sovereignly command hard things according to His grace in order that we would turn to Him. That we would turn to Him in prayer and reliance upon Him. And so rather than destroying those who rebel against their sovereign Creator, He disciplines us to bring us back to Him for even more grace. And I think Jonah, Jonah, I think he is starting to get this. Jonah says down in, in verse 3 of our passage, he says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. See, Jonah sees that this, this affliction is of the Lord's sovereign hand. And so now looking at, at your own life, could it be the case that some of the afflictions that you are facing are because the Lord is disciplining you? Now it is true that not all of our afflictions come directly as a result of our sin. Look at, look at Joseph, look at Job, look at Christ himself. But it is also true that not all of our afflictions are not related to our sins. And so maybe the, the Lord has, has sent a difficulty, a, a trial, maybe even a near-death experience to open your eyes to your sin, to, to discipline you, and to lead you back to Him for His grace. See, if we want to rightly understand God's grace, we must rightly understand His sovereign hand in our lives. And so that's, that's the first truth. That leads to the second truth, that if we are to rightly understand God's grace, we must rightly understand our sin. See, Jonah understands that God is, is sovereign over all things. He even understands that it is God who has sent His affliction upon him. But what Jonah fails to understand is that his, his affliction is directly a result of his own sin. And because he fails to understand that, he fails to understand God's grace. You can, you can look through Jonah's prayer and you'll see that all throughout he's, he's quoting a bunch of 
different psalms, and I don't have time to go through each one of them, but in general, all the psalms that he's, he's quoting are about people who are suffering not for their own sin, but for some other reason. For example, Kevin read for us Psalm 3. David has, has fled from Absalom, who is trying to kill him, and so the distress that he's in is because of that, not because of his sin. And so Jonah, he's got this kind of woe is me attitude. I am in distress. But he fails to realize that, that he is the reason that he's in this whole situation. You can look through and Jonah never once mentions his own sin. Never once does he, he call out and say that he is sorry for disobeying the Lord. Never once does he call out for forgiveness. In verse 2, he'll, he'll talk about his, his distress. Down in verse 5, he, he talks about how he's being, he's being taken away. His life is being taken from him. But he never once mentions his own sin. Even in the verse I read earlier, for you cast me into the deep. I mean, he, he, he understands that, is, that God has cast him into the deep, but he doesn't understand why God has cast him into the deep. In fact, the only sin that he mentions is down there in verse 8. He says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. So right there, he's taking a shot at the sailors who have been calling out to their vain idols. But what he doesn't know is as he's sinking down to the depths of the sea, what were the sailors doing at the end of verse 16? Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They've turned from their vain idols, and they've put their faith in the steadfast love of the Lord. He's too, con he's too concerned with the sins of others, that he misses his own sin. And this is a big problem because the Bible tells us that we need to repent. But you cannot repent of what you will not confess. And you cannot confess what you do not grieve. And you cannot grieve that which you do not see. And Jonah doesn't see his sin. He just sees this as a, as a distress that he is facing. He's really being euphemistic. He's not being honest with God and with his situation. And the problem with that is that that creates a stagnant walk with the Lord. That creates a really dull walk with the Lord where you are not going to grow in your Christian faith. I mean, prayer like this where, where we just pray about our distress, we don't recognize our sin, we don't confess our sin, we should never expect that our heart is going to be drawn nearer to the Lord. And so if you're not willing to look into your own life and see your own sin, your heart is not going to be conformed to the image of God. If all you see, like Jonah, is, is the sin of others, you know, this person always does this, I need to pray for them. You know, this person's in, in, in sin in this area, wow, they need me to, to be a prayer warrior for their sin. You are not going to grow as a Christian. You are not going to truly experience the grace of God. We need to look into our own lives and see our own sin. And Jesus himself said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to, to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so if we don't see ourselves as sinners, if we don't see ourselves as sick, then we don't need the grace of God. Why do you need the great physician if you're not a sick person? Grace seems unnecessary when we don't recognize our sin. You go out into, into the streets or somewhere or, or, or to a family member and you tell them that they need the grace of God to be, to be saved, most of them will think or even say, 
I don't need to be saved. I'm not such a bad person. They don't see themselves as sinners. Now, do you see yourself as a sinner? I assume all of us here would would give a, a hearty amen to that question. Yeah, of course I'm a sinner. But I think one way we can evaluate whether that's not just a head knowledge, but actually a heart knowledge, is does your prayer life reflect that you think you're a sinner? How often do you come and confess to the Lord? How often do you grieve over your sins? How often do you, do you fall on your knees in repentance? If you truly do believe that you are a sinner, your prayer life and your whole life should be marked of one of, by, by repentance and by running to the grace of God. And so my, my challenge to you, my challenge to myself uh, this past week, is to spend time in your prayers asking that God would reveal your own sinfulness to you. And also my challenge is, don't just ask Him to reveal, yeah, I'm a, I'm a general sinner, I sin like everybody else. Ask Him to reveal to you specific sins. Now, we're commanded in the Bible to repent of specific sins, not just sin in general. You know, to simply say, oh Lord, I, I'm a sinner and I repent of that, that's not biblical confession or repentance. Pray that God re- would reveal specific sins to you, like, like your anger or your, your lust or your irritability or your, your pride or your gossiping or whatever sin it might be that, that you can struggle with. Ask Him to reveal that to you and ask Him then to break you over your sin. The prayer we're going to lead, read later about someone who is truly repentant to God, you'll see that he has a, has a broken heart over his sin. He sees what his sin does. He sees how his sin hurts not only man, but most importantly, hurts the Lord and is against God. And then, in your prayer, repent of those sins and thank God for his glorious grace. We need to understand our sin if we are, under, if we are to understand his grace. And with understanding our sin also comes understanding the penalty for our sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. In verse 2, Jonah describes himself as going down to the belly of Sheol. You see, Sheol in the, in the Old Testament really was a, a representation of the realm of the dead. It's the, the place of the grave. It's a dark and a dusty and a place of no escape. It's essentially a representation of what death is. And so Jonah was saying he was down uh, experiencing death at the point of death. And that's when God saved him. And this is what Jonah, he's really describing in his prayer, this, this place of no escape. If you look at verses 5 and 6, he talks about the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me, weeds wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. So he's describing this place where he's trapped. It's like we're drowning. I'm not sure if any of you have ever had an experience where you were close to drowning. When you, you, you just want a, a breath of air to get escape from the suffocation that you're feeling in your lungs. But there's no air to grab. 
That's what death is like. Death is looming over Jonah. He is trapped and there's no way out in the prison of the deeps. See, there's a, a prison. I looked up as I was writing the sermon. What is, what is the like, most intense prison uh, that we have in North America? And there's a prison in the States called the Florence Supermax. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it. It's the, the hardest prison in the United States to escape. I thought it was maybe Alcatraz, but people have escaped from that. Uh, but no one has escaped from this prison. It's located in the desert of Colorado, and ever since it was created, not one person has escaped. It's where they will send uh, prisoners that are, are too violent, or perhaps prisoners that have maybe escaped other prisons. They'll send them to this prison because you can't escape from it. El Chapo, one of the most famous and notorious Mexican drug dealers, is in that prison right now. Robert P. Hansen, a former FBI agent who made millions uh, off of selling classified information to the Soviet Union, is in there. Uh, one of the bombers uh, in the Twin Towers attacks is in there. And so it is a place with some, some bad dudes. And worst of all, it is inescapable. There's no way out. And the same is true with death. We deserve to die and suffer eternally for our sin. And there is no way that we can escape that. Everyone here in this room, Christian or non-Christian, deserves to roast in the fires of hell for our rebellion against our Creator. And so if God had, had let Jonah continue down to the bottom of the sea and drown, God would have only been given Jonah exactly what he deserves for his sin. The wages of sin is death. Jonah sinned, and so he deserves to die. Now, I said earlier that there is no way that we can escape from that. That is, there is no way in ourselves that we can escape from that. Because praise be to God that God doesn't give us what we deserve. God does not give us what we deserve. And this leads to the, the third point of the sermon. If we are to rightly understand God's grace, we must rightly understand His mercy. Rightly understand His mercy. Look again at verse 6. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. So he's, he's at the point of death, inescapable, trapped in the bars of the prison of death. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. See, Jonah was suffering the consequences of his sin. He was heading down to the grave, and yet God showed him mercy. That's what mercy is. Mercy is not giving us what we rightfully deserve. We rightfully deserve death and hell for our sin, but instead God doesn't give us that. He gives us mercy. And I think this is why Jonah mentions the temple. You'll notice in verse 4 he says, yet, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. And then in verse 7 he says, And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. But why does he, he mention the temple in his prayer? It's because the temple was the place where the mercy of God was given to sinners. You see, countless sacrifices were made in the temple. Countless blood was spilled upon the altar. Once every year, the priest would enter into the very presence of God on the Day of Atonement, and he would bring the blood of a perfect lamb, and he would kill it, 
and then he would spread the blood. And do you know where he would spread the blood? Upon the mercy seat. You see, all of that pointed, the whole temple system pointed to the mercy of God. It symbolized that our sin required death. And instead of God bringing death upon us, an unstained animal who was, was substituted in our place, God was being merciful to them, not giving them what they deserved. And so Jonah, he, he looked to the temple for the mercy of God. But today, we as Christians, we don't look to the temple anymore. Instead, we look to Christ, the true temple of God. We remember the words of John the Baptist, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, Jesus came as the final Lamb, the one through whom God would would actually and fully deal with our sins. Hebrews 10 says that the blood of bulls and goats could never atone for sin. It is only Christ's sacrifice that could. Hebrews 10 verse 14 says, For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The mercy of God was on full display on the cross of Christ. Now I always think to myself, why did God do this? I mean, why would God send His only Son to be mistreated, mocked, abused, and ultimately killed? Was it because God saw Something good in me? No. The Bible says that we are but the scum of the earth and all of our works are like filthy rags. Well, was it because God thought that he was being a little bit too harsh with me, punishing me for my sin? No. God was rightfully punishing sinners and he was good and just to punish us for our sin. Well, was it because God was lonely And that he needed someone in heaven to to fulfill him. No. God has existed, existed eternally content as the triune God. So then why would God ever send his son for a filthy, rotten sinner like me? Well, he sent his son because, as Jonah says later in chapter 4, he is a gracious and merciful God slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. God in His infinite love decided that for His glory ultimately, and for our good, that He would give Himself in the place of sinners. He would make right for us what we could not make right for ourselves. He would rescue us from that which there was no escape. He would bear His own wrath in order that we might become the sons and daughters of God, saved from death. If that doesn't make your heart sing, if that doesn't make you want to call out in praise and thanksgiving to our merciful God, then you might be more like Jonah than you think. You might not understand the grace of God. Now finally, looking at the last truth about God's grace, it's that we need to rightfully understand our own spiritual impotence, our own spiritual inability. Look at Jonah's final words in verse 9. He says, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation 
belongs to the Lord. When Jonah says salvation belongs to the Lord, it literally means that salvation only comes from the Lord. There's no other, other source of salvation. Salvation is by grace and grace alone. What that means is that, that we do not muster up an ability within ourselves to be saved. Our world is, is very obsessed with this idea that, that we need to and that we can fix ourselves. You know, we need to, to muster up this ability within us to, to be good and to do good, and that is what is going to be the solution of all of our problems. If we'll, we'll read this self, self-help book, fix ourselves, then we'll be happy, then we'll be good, then we'll be saved. But that's just a straight-up lie. And you cannot fix yourself. It's like someone trying to perform a, a brain transplant on themselves. It can't be done. Salvation is solely from the Lord. Salvation is solely of grace. See, Jonah could not save himself from, from Sheol. He could not break himself out of the bars of death. He needed someone to come and save him. And the same is true with us. We don't bring, muster up together all of our good works and bring them to God and say, Lord, please let this be acceptable to you. No, what we say is, Lord, I am not acceptable to you. Lord, I have, I have no works in my hands to bring to you that would, would earn anything or merit anything. It is only by your mercy that I am saved. I'm reminded of the old hymn, Rock of Ages, which makes it so clear that salvation rests solely upon the grace of God. It says this, Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal? No respite, respite, no. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to Thee for dress. Helpless look to Thee for grace. Foul I to the mountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Our only hope lies in Christ, the God of our salvation. You cannot earn the favor of God. You cannot make yourself right before God. Come to Him broken and naked and helpless, and He will dress you, He will fix you, and He will wash you lest you die. So we've looked at four truths that we need to understand to rightly understand God's truth. Two things about God, His, his sovereignty and His mercy, and then two things about us, our our sinfulness, and that our sinfulness deserves death. And secondly, our spiritual inability, our impotence to save ourselves. And as I said earlier, I don't think Jonah quite has a grasp on the grace of God. Yes, he believes that God is sovereign, but that doesn't lead him to repentance before his sovereign God. Yes, he believes that he is a sinner, but he is more concerned with the, the sins of the Gentiles than his own sin. Yes, he knows that God is merciful and he is glad to experience that mercy for himself, but he despises the fact that God will be merciful to others. Yes, he recognizes that, 
salvation only comes from the Lord and that you can't earn salvation, but then he faults the Ninevites because they are sinful and thinks that they are not worthy to receive the salvation of God. And so with his words, Jonah exalts the grace of God, yet with his heart, he is still hardened towards it. And I think that's why in verse 10, it says that the fish vomits Jonah out. Verse 10 says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And the author could have said, you know, released. The author could have said, spit out. But he specifically uses the word vomit. If you look up that word, you'll see that vomit is never uh, used in a positive way. It's supposed to bring up images of displeasure with this person. For example, Leviticus 20 verse 22 says, You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I'm bringing you, that you, li- bringing you to live may not vomit you out. You know, this idea that, that these people, if they fail to do this, they are disgusting to the Lord and they deserve to be vomited out. See, God here, he's disgusted with Jonah. God has spared Jonah from certain death. He showed him his grace and his mercy. And instead of repenting of his sin, instead of admitting his guilt before the Lord, instead of changing his heart to understand the grace of God, Jonah prays his pious prayer. He's thankful that he didn't die, but he still has no desire to see his own sin and to celebrate the love of God to the Gentiles. We'll see that later in chapter 4. And that's disgusting to God. Someone who claims to love the Lord, yet their heart and their lives reveal that they only love themselves. And so I want to give you an example now of what true repentance looks like and true understanding of the grace of God looks like. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51. This is a psalm of David. And these are the words that he cried out after he was confronted with his sin of committing adultery with Bathsheba and then going on to cover up that sin by murdering Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. And I want you to listen to the difference between Jonah's prayer and David's prayer, as it's the difference between someone who is vomited out by the Lord and someone who is loved by God. Psalm 51 says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly for my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in, my, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach your transgress then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. We see here the difference between Jonah's prayer and David's prayer. David is broken before the Lord. David sees his sin. Now the question this morning is, which of these are you? Does your prayer life, does your life look more like Jonah? Or does your life, your prayer life, look more like David? Do you see your sins? Are you broken over your sins? Do you recognize that you rest solely in the hands of God? Do you understand the grace of God? Let's pray.